The Atlanta Journal-Constitution is taking Georgia political coverage to the next level. Now, Georgia's smartest political team is adding Hall of Fame political broadcaster Bill Nygut. I am beyond thrilled to be joining the remarkable political team at the AJC. And with the year that we have unfolding in politics, it's going to be an exciting ride. Read Bill Nygut's expert insight on AJC.com and listen to the Politically Georgia podcast with me, Greg Bluestein, And me, Patricia Murphy. And me, Tia Mitchell. Hear new episodes every weekday. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. The celebration. The Atlanta Journal Constitution presents. Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. We're listening to Breakdown. Railroad Justice in a Railroad Town, a special podcast by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Visit our website, ajcbreakdown.com, for photos, video, and additional background. Previously on Breakdown. We both felt like what he was telling us was true and what he was telling us that he had not committed this crime. I remember in the car ride back, us deciding we got to take this case. He says, what do you think? I said, well, I think he's guilty. And I saw the look on John uh, Raines' face. I thought he was going to kick me out of his office. I put my 9mm in the holster, and I grabbed the Remington 870 pump shotgun, and I filled all my pockets with guns and ammo. You know, I said, man, I'm not going to run out of guns or ammo if we go in there. Welcome to Episode 5. If you recall from last time... We took you on quite a detour, introducing you to Justin Chapman's new defense team. That includes two young associates from a top Atlanta law firm and two retired FBI agents. The agents found it stimulating to try to get someone out of prison after decades of putting people in prison. In this episode, we're going to take a very deep dive into what that defense team found. I imagine you'll find it just as shocking as I did. Two key witnesses were largely responsible for sending Justin Chapman to prison. You'll recall that Chapman was convicted in 2007 of setting fire to his own house, a fire that spread to his neighbor's apartment and killed her. Chapman was found guilty of felony murder in the death of 79-year-old Alice Jackson. As I've been telling you all along, I don't know whether he did it, but I've also been telling you that he didn't get a fair trial, that the criminal justice system broke down at nearly every turn in his case. We've exposed a number of those breakdowns, but now we're going to look at some big ones. So return your seats and tray tables to the upright position. We're taking off. The prosecution presented 12 witnesses, but none was more damaging to Justin Chapman's case than Joseph White and Gary Allen Stroop. First, let's have a look at Joe White. White was 43 years old. He had been in jail for almost a year, awaiting trial on charges that he molested two children for more than a decade. White would be acquitted of those charges three months before Chapman went on trial. The timing's important because White was not under the threat of prosecution when he testified against Chapman. Does that mean he told the truth? The prosecution sure thought so. Here's Assistant District Attorney Charles Rooks in his closing argument. Joe White sat here in the witness stand, and he went through 
a wisdom cross-examination. You saw what defense counsel did. That was as excited as she got during the entire case. She, she yelled at him. She confronted him. Joe White's manner of testifying was, I'll answer all your questions. I'll tell you what I know. Joe White didn't do is come in here and tie this case up in a nice, neat package and say, you know, for some unknown reason, I'm just going to tell a lie on this other person. Rooks has declined to sit down with me for an interview, but we've talked to each other by phone and email a few times. He is upset about the way the case has been portrayed by the new defense team, and he's equally upset about the AJC's coverage of it. Rooks no longer works at the DA's office. He's in private practice. He won't answer specific questions about the case, but one thing is crystal clear. He remains firmly convinced that Chapman is guilty of the arson and murder. Okay, back to Joe White. By the way, you can find a picture of White and other key players in the case on our podcast website, ajcbreakdown.com. White had once worked as a jailer at the Douglas County Detention Center. He was charged there with selling contraband cigarettes to inmates. So he knew a thing or two about how county jails worked. This knowledge might have come in handy when he was locked up with Justin Chapman at the Harrelson County Jail. The two were on the same cell block for three days. White testified with devastating effect that Chapman confessed to him as the two were praying together in the cell block. I have looked and looked for White, and I'm still looking. But for now, all I have is what he said at trial. We had uh, several conversations, and during one of the conversations, he told me that he did kill, set the fire that killed the lady. At one point, he also said he uh, felt like he had done our favor. He never showed no remorse for anything that, uh, that took place other than that he was scared. There was also the stupid testimony. There was a couple of people that heard him to have conversations on the phone about they'll never catch me. Uh, I started the fire in such a way that um, Ray was too stupid to find out who did it. He also made that comment to me a couple of different times. It's like, Raymond's never caught me doing anything. They're just too stupid. And they'll never catch me for this. Did you hear that? According to White, Chapman told him, Raymond has never caught me doing anything. They're just too stupid. Jan Hankins was Chapman's public defender the state-provided lawyer who took Chapman to trial without adequate preparation and lost his case. Joe White probably represented Hankins' biggest challenge in court. He was a strong and effective witness, and it was up to Hankins to discredit him. The best way for her to do that was to show that he had a motive to lie. During her cross-examination of White, she tried to show that he talked to police about Chapman's confession at a time when his child molestation charges were still hanging over his head. Hankins tried to show the jury that White was looking for a deal. You were trying to get favor from Investigator Stevens from the district attorney's office in exchange for testimony. I was not trying to get the favor. Here's Hankins trying once again. You were trying to get a deal out, out of testifying against Justin Chapman, weren't you? No, I was not. Before we go any further, it's time for this week's Lesson in the Law. In 1963, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of Brady versus Maryland. This was a big one. Let's say the prosecution has evidence that would help the defendant. For example, evidence that would discredit a prosecution witness or could cast blame for the crime on someone else. This is called exculpatory evidence because it shows the defendant may not be culpable or guilty of the crime. 
In Brady v. Maryland, the court ruled that the prosecution must turn over this evidence to the defense. Failure to do so is a violation of the defendant's constitutional right to due process. The principle is so important that the court said the prosecution's intent doesn't matter. The prosecutors could deliberately be hiding information, or they might legitimately have forgotten to turn something over. It doesn't matter, according to Brady. It's still a constitutional violation. On appeal, if a court decides that the evidence had a reasonable probability of changing the verdict, then the defendant must have a new trial. You can imagine that this was one of the most important high court rulings in the history of criminal justice. What does the Brady ruling have to do with the Chapman case? If you remember from a previous episode, Hankins, who worked out of Atlanta, was having problems getting recordings of witness statements from the prosecution. There were a lot of witness statements that were either audio or videotaped, and the state was copying them or providing them to me. And I would get back to the office with some of these CDs and realize, well, this, wait a minute, it says witness John Doe, but witness John Doe isn't on this tape, it's somebody else. After Chapman lost his trial in his appeal, Hankins searched for years to find a lawyer who would take his case on for free. She remained certain of Chapman's innocence. Five years after Chapman's conviction, Hankins finally found that lawyer. Attorney Mike Kaplan agreed to take the case pro bono. He joined up with another associate at his firm, John Raines, and the two put together a defense team of eight people, including lawyers, investigators, and paralegals. The new team vacuumed up every shred of information it could get on the Chapman investigation, trial, and appeal. They also inventoried Hankins' own files as well. And guess what? The files from the state didn't match up with Hankins' files. Here's Mike Kaplan recounting a key discovery. When we reviewed the videos uh, of the interviews conducted by the police and by uh, the trial prosecutor as well, we were struck by one video that occurred on August 2nd, 2006 of Joseph White. This was an interview conducted by the trial prosecutor himself of Mr. White after Mr. White came forward. In this interview, Mr. White made some very significant statements that we had never seen before because none of those statements were used in cross-examination of Mr. White at trial. We initially believed that simply as a result of the short period of time Ms. Hankins had to prepare for the trial, she may have just missed uh, this material as a part of uh, preparing Mr. White's cross-examination. Remember how, when he testified at the trial, White said he wasn't looking for a deal? Well, that's not what the newly found videotape indicates. Listen here as the trial prosecutor, Charles Rooks, questions White. Now, I understand that any reason that you would want to cooperate may be to try and get some, some consideration on your child molestation. Is that... Yeah. So... This directly contradicts White's testimony on the stand when he said he didn't come forward to seek a deal or consideration. During the pretrial interview with White, Rooks gave White different signals as to whether he could receive any benefit for his information. The problem is, is that if you're testifying in front of a jury and your incentive is to give us something that we want, then your testimony becomes less credible. See what I'm saying? Because you're doing it for a benefit. The benefit is... You what you get. And so that undermines the believability of what you're giving me. See what I'm saying? Okay. I wondered about that. I mean, 
I, I didn't know how that would look or anything to that effect. Here's Rooks telling White what he wants him to do. Is to be honest with me, we've got this woman who's been killed, and everybody liked her, and she didn't do anything to put herself in harm's way. So if you've got information on that, you know, I'm not going to make any promises about what I'll do with your case, but I'll take it into consideration. Okay. So now Rooks is saying he will take White's cooperation into consideration. This certainly must give him a hope that something good is coming his way. And this is the type of stuff that is prime fodder for cross-examination, but only if the defense knows about it. By the way, this is kind of wacky. After Prosecutor Rooks tells White he'll take his help into consideration, a most unusual exchange occurs. Listen to what happens next. What I'd like to hear from you is information that I can go out and verify through other sources. Now, I don't know if you've got that kind of information or not, but that would be the best thing is if, if there's stuff that you got that I can go the on. The only thing that I know is about where he told me before he was met, before the fire. Okay. And that's the only thing. I told that to the investigator a while ago. Before he started the fire, he took the map and put it in a vehicle. Alright. Say what? The only thing White knows is where Justin Chapman hit his meth before the fire that killed Alice Jackson? Well, that is truly bizarre. White is supposed to be laying his cards out on the table, and he only plays one card, about where Chapman said he hit his meth. And he doesn't mention the confession. Only later, when prompted by Rooks, did White say that Chapman had confessed to him that he set the fire. But did he ever talk to you and tell you specifically that he had done? What did he say? Why did he say he did it? He was having a fight with the landlord and had been falling out with the landlord and he'd been having some problems out of the neighbor. As you can imagine, these exchanges between White and Rooks might have made a difference in Chapman's defense. Here's Mike Kaplan explaining why it didn't. So when we met with Miss Hankins, we asked her why she did not use that video to cross-examine Mr. White. Um, we played the video for Ms. Hankins in the firm library, and after about two or three minutes, uh, Ms. Hankins just started shaking her head in disbelief. Um, I asked her what uh, she was thinking, and Jan turns to me and says, I have never seen this before. And that's when we discovered that the trial prosecutor had never disclosed the August 2nd recorded interview of Joseph White, which was probably the most important piece of impeachment evidence in the whole case. John Raines picks up the narrative. When Miss Hankins told us she had never received the August 2nd video of White, we went back and checked the file she had turned over to us at the beginning of the case. And that file had other video interviews and audio interviews in it. The only one that was missing when you compared Ms. Hankins' file against the, the work that we had gathered from the police and all that was this August 2nd interview. She was just missing the most critical evidence. As you can hear, Kaplan and Raines described this episode in dispassionate, lawyerly terms. Jan Hankins, the public defender, is a little more emphatic. She remembers Kaplan showing her the video for the first time and remembers her realization that she'd never seen it. I knew that stinking Joe White was lying. I knew he was lying, I knew he was lying, and I could not prove it. Remember, under the Brady ruling, it doesn't matter whether the prosecution deliberately conceals evidence or just forgets to hand it over. 
If Hankins didn't get that video, as she says, that was an obvious Brady violation. White's statements on the video helped to undermine his statements at trial, and he was the state's star witness. Rooks says in court papers and in emails to me that he didn't hide anything from Hankins, that she had what he had. In an affidavit, he says he completely disclosed the existence of the video and its contents to Hankins. There's also the mysterious missing page of a letter that White wrote to his minister from jail. More than three weeks after his interview with Rooks, White wrote up an account in which he details Chapman's purported confession. In the five-page account, handwritten on lined paper, White claimed, among other things, that Chapman had told him that he started the fire in such a way police couldn't prove it. He also said that Chapman told him he didn't mean for the fire to kill Alice Jackson, but he believed she was better off now. It's important to note that this statement was written on the front side of the five pages and that the back sides of each page were blank. Along with this lengthy statement, White wrote a cover letter to his pastor. The cover letter was two pages, the front and back of the same sheet of paper. Hankins has said that Rooks faxed her the statement and the cover letter, but the back page of the cover letter was missing. It wouldn't have been obvious that a page was missing because the first page of the cover letter ended with a complete sentence. So what did White write on that second page? I quote, Hold off giving my statement to police. I want to see what's going on for a few days. Mike Kaplan says that was an important piece of information that Hankins should have been made aware of. He reported to his pastor on some of the information that he had gathered against Justin in the prison. Uh, But critically, in the second page of that letter, Mr. White directed his pastor to hold off on giving his statement to the police because he wanted to see what was going to happen with the pending child molestation charges against him. In other words, he was looking for the maximum bargaining leverage that he could obtain. Rooks, in his sworn statement, said the missing page from the facts he sent to Hankins was not omitted intentionally. He also doesn't buy Kaplan's interpretation of the importance of it. The page, Rooks said, contains nothing that would have assisted Hankins with her defense. In any case, you can sort of see how this might have happened, right? The letter was written on the front and back of the page, and Rooks might have only faxed the front. I can see myself doing that. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. We're not quite finished with that letter to the preacher. Rooks told White during the August 2nd interview that he wanted corroboration of White's story. You remember that? In the five-page statement he sent to his pastor, White recounted how Chapman had led a prayer session in the jail. Here's a quote. As we ended in prayer, another inmate, William Liner, walked into the room. According to White, Liner was standing there when Chapman said, 
Thank you, God, for allowing me to be there when the fire started so I could get my old lady and my kids out of the fire safely. We established in earlier episodes that Chapman's family wasn't even at the house when the fire broke out. So on its face, White's statement seems to make little sense. But there's more. Chapman's new defense team found William Liner. And I did, too. So Prosecutor Rooks was asking White for people who could corroborate his account. White's mention of Liner in the letter apparently caught Rooks' attention. Here was a second inmate who heard Chapman confess at the Harrelson County Jail. Or so Joe White said. By then, that second inmate, William Liner, was serving out his prison sentence for drug possession at Hayes State Prison in Tryon, Georgia. Rooks thought Liner could provide critical testimony that corroborated what White had to say. So, sight unseen, he put Liner on his witness list. Rooks then obtained a production order for Liner. In the free world, they send you a subpoena to summon you to court. In prison, they issue a production order to the state, ordering it to produce someone in the state's custody. This production order was signed by the court 10 days before Justin Chapman's trial in June 2007. In other words, Rooks was arranging to have Liner transferred to the Harrelson County Jail so he would be ready to testify. But before having Liner transferred, Rooks decided to drive up to Hayes State Prison and see him first. Liner was on work detail building fences with other inmates on the day he got word of the visit. You won't be coming to work on fences the next day, he was told, because the prosecutor is coming to see you. Rooks and Liner's accounts of what happened the next day could not be more different. According to Rooks, he took no notes of the interview, so there's no record of the conversation. All we have is one guy's account versus the other guy's account, but one of them is mistaken. Rooks says in his sworn statement that Liner confirmed that he heard Chapman confess. Rooks also says he vividly recalls Liner saying he did not want to testify because he did not want to be a snitch. But Liner signed a sworn statement of his own. White's statement was absolutely false. Liner wrote, I never heard Chapman confess to anything. Liner said Rooks told him he was having trouble getting White to testify at the upcoming trial. Rooks had said White was recently acquitted of the child molestation charges and no longer needed to do any favors for the prosecution. After his interview with Liner, Rooks decided he was not going to use Liner's testimony at trial. So the transfer order to send Liner back to Harrelson County was canceled. Here's one of those crazy asides that you sometimes hear about in the justice system. The day after Rooks came to see Liner and left empty-handed, a deputy showed up at the prison to drive Liner to the Harrelson County Jail. Before they got very far, Liner told the deputy that he'd been taken off the transfer list and really wasn't supposed to be going to Harrelson County. The deputy then drove to a Walmart parking lot near the prison, got on the phone, and found that Liner was indeed correct. He was no longer needed for Chapman's trial, so the deputy drove Liner back to the prison, and he too left empty-handed. Like I said, I've talked to Rooks. Even though he won't sit down for an interview, he insists that what he put down in his affidavit is true. But I did catch up with Liner. I sat down with him and his wife at their dining room table. Liner, 47, was out of prison and working in West Georgia. I asked him what he thought about Joe White. I really didn't trust him. He was my bunkmate, not by my choice for a while. First, I got a good impression from him, but then after I seen what he was trying to do about a couple of other things that went on inside the jail, he was trying to get a deal, you know. Do you remember being in prayer sessions at all there? No. Not really? No. He said you were in a prayer session with Justin Chapman where he said, thank God. 
for allowing me to be there when the fire started so I can get my wife and kids out. What, no, what, that's not true at all. You recall anything like that at all? No. <laughs> okay. Not at all. It did not happen. When you heard that, what was what was your impression? Know, it blew my mind. And, you know, I don't know. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> okay. right. But then, you know, being in the situation he was in, I could believe him saying he done it. And I can kind of get the impression of the person that he was, but why he said that I was privy to the conversation, I have no idea. Joseph White said that I was, you know, at a prayer session with him and Chapman that I heard this conversation that he also heard, you know, it was false. And I told the district attorney that. You told him that what that was false? Yeah, that, I didn't know what they were talking about. Do you recall if he was taking notes of what you were? Do yes, you, you he was taking notes. You do remember that? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. How how certain are you then? How I'm fit? certain he was taking notes. Yeah. Okay. Like on a what was he? What was he on using? a legal pad? On a legal pad. Yeah. Okay. Liner then explained why he had come forward with this information. Because it was the truth. You know, I didn't like my name being put in on something that I was no part of. To be honest with you, you know, he had no right. I don't know why he said that. Really don't. Really don't. Maybe he was hoping nobody check. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe he thought of somebody like him trying to just latch on to it and get my time cut or whatever, you know, just to come up there. I don't know what he thought, but he was wrong. So it's clear that Rooks, Chapman's new legal team, and I have all talked to Liner. But Jan Hankins never talked to him. Liner was on Rook's witness list, so theoretically Hankins could have sent an investigator up to Tryon to interview Liner. But her investigator came to work on the case only 13 days before trial. For Hankins, Liner remained a name on a list and nothing more. How powerful would that have been if Jan had had that? Well, that would have undercut Joe White. That's John and Sonia, a former FBI agent who's now a member of Chapman's new defense team. It would have been really powerful because there's two witnesses that led to Justin's conviction, White and, and Stroop. And stuff like Billy Liner would have undercut the credibility uh, of Joe White. White. Then the jury's got something to hang their hat on and say, there's just too much doubt going on over here. Remember the Brady ruling? It's still in effect. If what Liner told me is true, if he really told Rooks that he didn't hear Chapman confess, then Rooks should have turned that over to the defense. But Rooks claims Liner didn't say that and he has no notes from the interview. He's also insisted he hid nothing from the defense. And here's what he had to say in his closing argument. The state has called all the witnesses that, that we felt like knew anything that could bear on this case, because it's, it's really your case. It's not a football game. I'm not here to hide the ball somewhere. They can't, I can't steal their signals. We know what happens to district attorneys who mislead They get disbarred, they get sued, they get put in jail. We've seen that happen nationally. This is not a game. This is about a search for the truth. The number two prosecution witness was Gary Allen Stroop. He of the stoop. Stroop died a few years ago, still in his 20s, so he is not available to answer questions about the fire and what he saw. Let's go back to the night of June 20, 2006, the night Justin Chapman's house burned down and Alice Jackson died. Gary Allen Stroop told the police he was sitting on his front porch, Stroop's stoop, at 3 a.m. when he spotted a figure walking near the corner of his street. You may remember in episode 3, we visited Stroop's stoop in Bremen. 
There we met Miguel Santos, who now lives in the house that Stroop lived in then. We also met Miguel's 100-pound German shepherd, Zoe. What we learned was that Stroop couldn't have seen Chapman from his stoop. We measured the distance from the stoop to where Stroop testified he saw Chapman walking. It was at least 200 feet. At full dark, you can't see anything 200 feet away from that porch. You can hear Zoe's bark, but that's about it. So in about 10 minutes, we had called into question the testimony of Gary Allen Stroop. But Chapman's defense team didn't do that. Here's what they had to deal with. In an interview with investigators shortly after the fire, Stroop said he saw a man limping down the street. The limping part was important. Chapman had seriously injured his foot in a workplace accident years before and still walked with a pronounced limp. Stroop initially told police he couldn't say whether it was Justin Chapman or not. At the trial, nearly a year later, however, Stroop testified that he believed it was Chapman who left the neighborhood shortly before his burning house lit up the night. In his closing argument, Rooks described Stroop as an eyewitness and sought to bolster his testimony by reminding jurors what Stroop did and did not say on the witness stand. That was Mr. Stroop's testimony. Very credible. He told you exactly what he was able to see, how he saw if he were in here to tell a story, to collect an award, which there isn't any reward, which there isn't any evidence of anyway, then why not just say, yeah, he walked right by my house, just as close as you and I are. I looked him in the face, he looked at me and hurried away. It was Justin Jackman. A lot of things about this case have surprised me, but this absolutely blew me away. When I first looked at this case, this might have been the biggest shock of the entire story. The jurors in Justin Chapman's case never heard what I'm about to tell you. It comes from Stroop's sister during a court hearing in December 2013, more than six years after the trial. Will you state your full name for the record, please? Peggy Regina Lewis. Will you please raise your right hand? Do you swear that the testimony you will give in this cause will be the whole truth uh, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. On the night of the fire, Stroop was living with Lewis. Here, Lewis explains why. Because um, the deal to get him out of jail was he had to come live with us because he was drinking real bad and he was on drugs and he got arrested for some drug issues. And my mom told him to get him out. He had to come live with us. He had to move out of his house. Lewis said she was sitting out on the stoop with her brother at the moment the fire began. If you remember, Stroop Stoop, where Lewis lived, was on Marchman Street. Chapman lived on Sharp Street, which was one street over. The back of his house almost faced the back of Lewis's house. So Lewis and her brother, Gary Allen Stroop, were sitting out there, and around the time Chapman's house burns, they see a figure moving down toward the foot of Marchman Street. Stroop told the police the figure was limping, but Lewis said something else. And this is pretty amazing. This is a sister completely contradicting her own brother. Here is Lewis being questioned by John Raines, a member of Chapman's new legal team. Did Mr. Stroop tell you that night that the person he saw was Mr. Chapman? No. He actually, when we were talking about it, he said he didn't think it was Justin Chapman. He said that to you? He did, because we were looking at the person. This person was running. This person had no cane. So the person wasn't running. They were running. They were running. Lewis then said her brother was in no condition that night to be an eyewitness for the prosecution. Was your brother... Uh, under the influence of any drugs or alcohol uh, the night of the June 20th fire in 2006? He was. He was drinking. Uh, how much was he drinking? 
he had probably done put down a 12 pack that night or more. Of beer? Yes. Um, was he under the influence of any drugs? I believe so. I can't honestly guarantee it, but he was known to be on drugs. And that night, I think he was, because they had went out to visit a friend and then they came back and he started drinking and all. Lewis's testimony makes it sound as if Stroop was so impaired that night that he couldn't reliably have seen anything but the half case of beer he had just put away. Oh, oh, there's one more thing. How would you describe uh, your late brother's vision? Um, he had to wear glasses. He didn't have good vision. He's always worn glasses ever since he was little. Rains finally asks Lewis whether she was certain that she did not see Chapman that night. The person I seen did not have a cane. He did not have a limp. The only time I ever seen Justin, he always had a cane with him. He always walked on a cane. So I do not believe under any circumstances that was Justin because this person did not have a cane. So why would Stroop have said that he believed he saw Justin Chapman limping away from the scene? Do you remember what Prosecutor Rooks told the jury about Stroop in his closing arguments? Let's play it again. If he were in here to tell a story, to collect an award, which there isn't any reward, which there isn't any evidence of anyway, then why not just say, yeah, you know where this is going, right? Yes, of course. There was a reward, a $10,000 reward. And guess who got it? Gary Allen Stroop and Joseph White split it right down the middle, three weeks after the trial was over. Rooks said in his closing argument there was no evidence of a reward, but it wasn't even a secret. If you recall, Chapman and his family fled their house the night of the fire to stay with their friends, Stephen and Brandy Hughes. Arson investigators interviewed both Stephen and Brandy the day after the fire, a year before the trial, and they told them about the reward money. Well, how do I know that? I have their recorded interviews. Here's what one investigator told Stephen Hughes. My office has a program that offers a reward up to $10,000 for anybody that gives information that leads to the arrest and conviction of any arson. I don't know nothing about that. I'm, I'm just telling you that it's there in, in, case, in case that might help jog your memory something. Later, when they asked Hughes if he would call Chapman up on the telephone, and try to get him to say he set the fire, the investigators mentioned the reward money again. So if you called him, would he, would he tell you? I don't know. It's a lot of money. Wow. $10,000. And you know what, it's even more than it is, it's a lot of money, but it's a, it's a, yeah, but it's you a know, free ride for you and your wife. So the arson investigators were spreading word about the reward. The used knew about it. Stroop and White had to have known about it since they collected it. But the prosecutor told the jury there was no evidence of a reward. And that was after one of the prosecutor's own witnesses, the lead police investigator, confirmed during the trial that there was money floating around out there. Duana Allered lived right across Marchman Street from Stroop's stoop. She testified during the same hearing Stroop's sister testified in 2013. Allered had nothing good to say about Stroop. Would you characterize Mr. Stroop as truthful or untruthful? Untruthful. Why would you make that characterization? He's an unsavory character. Um, and how would you characterize his financial circumstances? Dire. Did he ever steal from you? 
on two occasions. I had let him do yard work for to give him some money for cigarettes and sodas and that that he said that they needed. Um, I'd let him go into my house to use the restroom get a drink of water. Both occasions there was small amounts of money taken out of my purse. She also said that Stroop had told her about the reward. And she said he asked her to keep it a secret. What did you talk to Mr. Stroop about within a few days of the fire? Um, he had advised me that there was a $10,000 reward that he was going to get. And please don't say anything to his sister, as she would want some of that money for them staying there. He was going to use that money to, to get out. And he mentioned that reward money shortly after the fire? Yes. Stroop was apparently able to keep his secret. Here's what his sister, Peggy Lewis, would later say. Did Mr. Stroop ever tell you that he thought the person that you all saw for an instant on the night of, or the early morning of June 20th, 2006, was Justin Chapman? When we first started talking about it, he said he didn't believe it was Justin because, once again, this guy had no cane. And did you ever hear your brother say um, that it was Justin? He told the detectives from my understanding that it was Justin. Did you tell them that in your presence? Not in my presence. How did you find out about that? After he was given the reward money. Before we move on, let me return to Dewana Allered. Allered hit one other very curious note in her testimony, and I'm not sure what to make of it. She said that she too was sitting outside her house at 3 a.m. that morning when the fire began. Yeah, I know. I don't know what it is about all these people in Bremen sitting outside at 3 o'clock in the morning. But Allered says she didn't see or hear Peggy Lewis and her brother sitting on their porch that night. Nor did she see a figure walking across Marchman Street, she testified. Like I said, I don't know what to make of that. I'm just passing it along. Mike Kaplan, one of Chapman's new lawyers, said the fact that both White and Stroop received reward money puts their testimony in a completely different light. That money was offered prior to the trial in this case to encourage, ostensibly, people to come forward and tell the truth. But money, particularly a lot of money offered to people in desperate circumstances, can cause them to do things other than tell the truth. Mr. Stroop was in a position in life where he would have said just about anything for $5,000, and he did. Mr. White, who was also given reward money, had recently been accused of child molestation and was also in a difficult part of his life when he testified at the trial. Reward money, while it may be offered with good intentions, can lead to significant inaccuracies in our criminal justice system because of the incentives to tell lies to assist the police and, uh, and convict wrongfully the innocent. All these revelations don't prove that Chapman is innocent, but they do show conclusively that the jury didn't have all the facts when it found him guilty, and the new evidence would figure prominently in the hearing for Chapman in December 2013. That was a habeas corpus proceeding in which Chapman's new lawyers asked a judge in Telfair County, where Chapman was incarcerated, to give him a new trial. New judge, new court, new lawyers, new evidence. Did Chapman actually have a shot at a new trial? Next week on Breakdown, Justin Chapman tells his side of the story. 
I come back out. He was gone. I wouldn't let it go. I followed him in the street. I pointed the pistol at him. He come back. I walked back into my yard, and he kept on walking back into my yard. And I thought, this dude's an idiot. So I began to beat him with the pistol. Please go to AJCBreakdown.com for photos of the cast of characters, a timeline, court documents, and bonus audio and video. Breakdown is a production of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The story is reported and told by Bill Rankin, produced by Richard Hallix. The music for Breakdown was composed and performed by Bo Emerson. Audio production by Chris Basta of CO3 Sound Atlanta. Story consultant Susanna Capilouto. Special thanks to Billy Thurman, Burt Roten, Eric Netherton, and Brian Anderson. 